0: So now we come uh, to this aspect of what is a Christ-honoring sense of purpose? Because as we just left off with with Moses in chapter 2, there was this sense between identity, who he was, and what God was calling him to do. And the same is, is true for us. And so we ask the question, what is purpose? Biblical purpose is an overarching goal or agenda for life that brings consistency and direction to the apparent disconnectedness of life. Purpose is what allows an individual to measure progress and to have a sense of accomplishment. Purpose refers to why you do things more than what you do. I think we can quickly realize that good actions need a sense of purpose to get anywhere. We can busy ourselves and we kind of become without purpose like a dog chasing his tail. There's lots of barking. There's lots of movement. There's lots of energy being exerted. We can be hot and sweaty and get to the end of it and go... (laughs) But we didn't get anywhere. And so without a sense of purpose, that's kind of what we're like. One of those points where I realized this in my own life uh, was when I was a sophomore in college. And I was beginning to feel called to ministry, and when you 're in sophomore in college and you're asked to do ministry uh, about the only thing they 'll let you do is youth ministry and if they 're not too sure about you, then they put you with middle school ministry and that 's where I was. They put me in middle school students, figuring i couldn 't do too much damage, and I loved it it was It was great. I was getting to teach and do stuff with students, and it was it was really i could I could feel that this is something I could give my life to and be very satisfied. But after the newness wore off, I began to realize doing ministry was about more than activities and Bible studies where I just shared with some middle school students what I got out of my devotions that week. I was being entrusted with the responsibility that I was to take and shape and groom these students in some way and I didn't know what that was and so at one level I kind of had this broad sense of purpose that was I wanted to do ministry I felt called and that was affirmed but what did it look like to do that putting any feet to that purpose was not something I could define and so it's it's with that that I think we can hear a quote like this one from Paul Tripp he says it's good to have purpose But if your purpose isn't tied to glory, you still have denied your humanity. And then he goes on to say, it is so hard to make the truly important functionally important. And I think we would just say, amen, that is right, it is hard. How do I take those things that I hear when I come to church about what God wants to do in and through his people to reach the nations and then Tuesday happens? And I get up and I get ready and I check the mail and there's junk mail and I'm eating leftovers and I've got to get ready for the next day and there's just routine. And how do I keep the truly important, functionally important within my life? And I think part of that is us narrowing down what our sense of purpose is. And I give you some questions here that you can look at. And actually it would probably be easier to follow along here on page 11 in your notebook. Uh, where for each of the chapters, you've probably already seen this, there's a a couple of pages uh, at the end of the the section where you're taking notes. Uh, And one of those is just a checklist where we go, what are some of the attributes that would define this being real in my life, where you can define that for yourself. And then another is a reflective exercise, and you'll see these same questions there where you can define, what is my purpose? Why did God make me? And so we make a list of things like, what are the things that I enjoy doing? And I think too often we think about God's will as if God were playing hide and seek or hard to get. As if we had to read tea leaves or kind of learn how to read internal special feelings that just were different from any other feeling that we got. And I don't think that's true. I think one of the my favorite pictures of what it's like uh, to follow the will of God comes in the movie Chariots of Fire where the main character, Eric Little, is trying to decide, do I run in the Olympics or do I become a missionary to the nation of China sooner? And you kind of go through the ups and downs of that decision-making process and then there's this climactic statement where Eric Little says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. In the statement, if I could put that in a principle, God's most personal direction comes in His personal design of you. If I were going to say that for myself, at least in one area of my life, I would probably say something like this. God made me a skinny little nerd. And when I take mass quantities of information and try to put it together in a way that's hopefully beneficial for other people that they can take and use and disciple one another with, I feel His pleasure. That is how God made me. And so I should expect that those things that God has given me that I'm good at, that bring me pleasure, He is the one who designed me to enjoy those things. And so my purpose is most likely going to flow out of those things. What are the talents and abilities that God has blessed you with? What are the unique or difficult life experiences that you have? Sometimes we get this idea that God can only work through the really good parts of our life, but He can also work to redeem and use the very difficult and challenging parts of our life. Who are the people groups with whom you interact and have influence? You know, for me at this season of my life, one of those is uh, the families of the, the families of the baseball players on my son's team. I, I love coaching baseball, and there's something, some kind of influence that you get when you take a young person and you teach them how to do something that they didn't think they could do, and their parents get to yell in the stands as they see uh, things that they weren't too sure their kids could do, and they feel like a team, and you put face paint on them, and you, you get to go through that life experience together, and you have influence. Well, if those are some of the people groups that that God has brought into my life, it would only make sense that part of me living out the purpose that He has would involve doing things in those those groups of people. What are the needs for ministering within your world? And so how do I put all of these things together for the glory of God? Those are the kinds of questions that are going to lead me to the reason um, that God made me and what He wants to do in this season of life. Now in light of this, I think the, the quote from Henry Blackaby here is, is very telling, very helpful. He says, what is God's will for my life is not necessarily the best question to ask. I think a better question is simply, what is God's will? Once I know God's will, then I can adapt my life to Him and His purposes. The focus needs to be on God and His purposes, not on my life. God doesn't usually give us a one-time assignment and leave us there forever. Yes, you may be placed in one job at one place for a long time, but God's assignments come to you on a daily basis. God is far more interested in a love relationship with you than He is in what you can do for Him. His desire is for you to love Him. And so as you answer these kinds of questions... I would encourage you not to think of it as a performance evaluation at your job, where you're going through your strengths and your weaknesses and you're getting graded on your performance evaluation. Think of it as a good parent who delights in seeing their child do the things that they are uniquely gifted to do and that sense of joy that they have when they see their child excel in those areas. When we pray to God, asking Him to show us His purpose. When we examine our lives with the questions that we've talked about to identify where that is, and then we do that. God is not a boss looking on a return for His investment in us, wanting to know whether His profit margin is increasing because of the redemption that He gave us in Christ. He is a Father who delights in seeing His children excel in the things that He made them to do. And so with this kind of evaluation, let me offer you a couple of seasons in my life where either not knowing this made things harder, and then hopefully where things became clearer as I began to to see some of these things. Uh, When I was in college, uh, I was part of a Christian sports camp. I was called Crosspoint for 4th through 8th graders. And so for the first two summers, I was a part of that ministry. Uh, I was baseball brat. Uh, I coached a couple of sport times. I did a couple of Bible studies, helped the other camp activities that were going on. And hopefully, without being prideful, uh, I can say I really enjoyed that, and I was good at it. I mean, I could take my baseball sport time, and it would sing It would run, uh, not always, but often seamlessly as the kids were chanting and yelling and smiling, going from station to station. The adults, the parents, and the youth workers would be leading those, and the kids would be learning. Uh, They'd be chanting, and it was just, it was great. In the Bible study, I could prepare those lessons and could communicate with a way that seemed to really resonate with the kids, and the passion in me could become contagious in them, and it wasn't just the passion, but it was the content, and I loved it. And after two summers of that, uh, the leadership felt like those things were going good. And they asked me, they said, Brad, would you, would you consider being a director for us next summer? And without much thought, I was kind of like, oh, shocks. Yeah, this is a promotion. This is next. Sure. And I hadn't really thought through the kinds of things that we've been talking about. And I look back on it now and I realize because I hadn't assessed my, my gifts well, I wasn't ready, I was too insecure to lead my peers, I I didn't have a skill set to take 300 kids and 20 of my peers and 50 adults and changing college campuses 8 times in 10 weeks and it just, it wasn't good, I mean I would say it was adequate and just me knowing me, adequate is one of those things that as a perfectionist, it just, it feels like failure and I was, I was demoralized. I remember uh, we were in Bowie Creek, North Carolina at Campbell University, just down the road here. It was at the end of the day, we had done what we needed to do, and the campers were uh, in their rooms and did what I needed to do with the staff and was going for a walk with my fiance now wife, who, was, um, who came to visit that week. And we sat down on a set of steps. I was exhausted and feeling like a failure. And I just put my head in her lap and I cried because I felt like a failure. And from that summer, uh, I took those experiences and I, I crystallized them into a message. And the message was, I'm a two, not a one. I can take a niche, I can do something in that niche, but if you ask me to lead something as a whole, I can't do that. That is not what I do. And the thing was, there was a little bit of truth to that, but also just not knowing... Uh, My gifts and not being honest and humble and ability to evaluate that, there was some things that didn't need to belong there. Well, fast forward about 10 years. I was a part of a parachurch ministry down in Georgia. And when they brought me on, they asked me to be the director of church relations, which meant that uh, I counseled people and then I did teaching events like this for churches. And I was in a niche and I felt like it was going really well. And There was a transition and the director stepped away. And the board of directors came to me and they said, Brad, we would like to ask you to be the director of this. And I immediately cringed and pulled back. And to this day, if my wife hears the phrase, I don't want it spoken in that way, she knows immediately because I said that so many times because it just, it, it, I was thinking, I can't do this. And again, I am not taking the time to assess. One, what had God done over this period of time? How had He grown me and gifted me? And also, what are the the lessons that I learned? And just what are the things that are different between this experience and that one? And kind of kicking and screaming, God placed me in that to say, this is something that you could do. And it excelled and it flourished. And I began to realize, when I assess these kinds of things, I get a clearer picture. And can make much more informed decisions instead of just on the basis of, how did something that might or might not be similar to this go last time? And so I would encourage you uh, for whatever experiences or decisions that you're making as you try to think through your life, answer those kinds of questions. Invite other people to speak into it so you have a clear sense of why God made you and what your purpose is. Um, but as we, as we examine that, uh, I think we, we need to look not just at what purpose is, but the obstacles. Because it is much easier to create a purpose statement than it is to sustain it or live it out. Uh, There are many trees that have given their life for the paper that an unfulfilled purpose statement has been written on. And so what I want us to do is just take some time here to look at what I would say are, are probably the five most common obstacles to living out the purpose that God made us for. And the first of those is just the mundane. You know, life is never quite as glorious as our purpose statement. Purpose statements tend to be motivating and big and grand. And most of life is not that. I mean, in that sense, think of the shepherd boy David. The anointed king in waiting. Because there was this time period where Saul, the prophet, came and uh, uh, Samuel anointed him as king. And then a long period of time before he became king, he had purpose, but it wasn't fulfilled. He still just had to watch sheep. And so what did he do with that time? Well, one, he remained content so that he could be described as a man after God's own heart in such a way that really protected him in many of the successes that he had in, in his times as king. He learned to use the slingshot and trust God against a lion and a bear uh, and that became uh, the very slingshot and courage that he used in facing Goliath which was part of what God used to place him in the position of king. He learned to play uh, the harp and write songs and playing the harp is part of, what, part of what God used to preserve him when Saul would go into a raging fit and he would use the music to, to calm Saul and, and allow him not to kill David. And so one of the things, we give you many in the, the article version of the notebook that you can get, but um, one of the things that I would encourage in the midst of the mundane is in any season, pick one thing that you're good at or that you're passionate about and develop that to such a point that it's available to God use, for God to use. Now there's another aspect here of, uh, of the mundane. And some of that sometimes we view our skill set as kind of average and normal. Um, And that's where I would encourage us to look at the character of Bezalel in Scripture. And and I would dare say most of us don't know who Bezalel is. Uh, He may be the only person in Scripture who gets nine entire chapters. And most of the church doesn't know him. I mean, let me read to you from the beginning of chapter 31 on how Bezalel is introduced in the Bible. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I mean, this guy sounds important. We don't know who he is. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Kind of Bible trivia fact. Bezalel is the first person in the Bible as being described as being filled with the Spirit of God. Again, we don't know who he is. Filled him with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic design, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and carving wood, to work in every craft. Bezalel was kind of a blue-collar laborer. I think if we met him, uh, he wouldn't view himself as all that significant. Uh, He would say, yeah, I'm kind of good with my hands, and I can make stuff and people who are important, they hire me and I make nice things for their house or I build their house for them. That's just kind of what I do. But God would view that very differently and we hear the way that God views all of the talents and abilities that He, he doesn't grade them on a blue collar, white collar, any other collar scale. But when He gifts us, he views every gift that He gives us as precious and valuable and something that He intends to use in ways that delight Him greatly and are satisfying for us in and through our lives. But another challenge is that of busyness. Just the number of things that we fill our day with. I think example of that would be the Tower of Babel. Uh, here is a group of people who were really busy and they were busy with something that was related to God. I mean, they were trying to build a tower to get to heaven. And so they were doing a lot and they were doing it well evidently because their tower got pretty high to the point that God said, ah, oh, they're missing I've got to go interfere with that so that they don't think this is how it works. And they were really busy and it got in the way for them doing what God actually called them to do with the purpose He placed on their life. And I think similarly for us, One of the things that you, if you've come to any of the seminars that we do, you've heard me say time and again, and I will continue to say it because I think it's so important, is that God gave us a 168-hour week. And everything that God intends for us to do fits in the 160-hour week that He gave us. And at least for me, and I think for you as well, it is so easy to come up with 200, 250 hours worth of good stuff to do. And that's even before we sin. But if I've got 200 hours worth of good stuff that I feel like I ought to do in a given week, I can rest in the fact that at least 32 hours of that is outside the will of God. Not because that's bad, but because He's fair. And so one of the things that I encourage you to do uh, in this section is to take a look at your life. And see how many things that you're doing that are busy in your life that aren't a part of your purpose. And you may need to begin to create an exit strategy. Some of those things you can begin to remove immediately. Other things you may have to look at kind of a six week or a three month or a six month plan to transition out of those things so that you can give yourself fully to those things for which God has made and called you. Another challenge uh, to fulfilling our purpose is when things are difficult. Because at the same time that there is a God who called us for a purpose, there is an adversary who wants to interfere with that and make it hard. And oftentimes when life is hard, we begin to wonder, did I get it right? God, did I really hear you? Did, did I do the math when I looked at my, what my purpose was and how you gifted me and that this was a good fit? Did I, did I just miss it? Um, and here I think of the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, who if you're depressed, I would just really recommend don't read the book of Jeremiah because he was someone who was given a hard message to a hard people and he, he didn't see much fruit at all. And, and there was a lot of angst and frustration for him about that. And it, when, you his, when you read his book, you begin to realize why he is called the weeping prophet. I think it's fitting that he's also the one who would write the book of Lamentations. And it's in this kind of situation where I would just encourage you, don't pursue fulfilling the purpose of God alone. It's why I'm so glad to be a part of a church that emphasizes small groups. God may have given you a sense of purpose that is unique to you as an individual, but He does not call you to fulfill that individualistically. He wants you to fulfill that as a part of community so there are people who can pray with you and encourage you and walk with you and help you think through uh, the challenges and hard times that you go through. And There's not just the difficult, uh, but the embarrassing. You know, times when our reputation would be uh, what would keep us from doing what God has called us to do. An example of this, I think of Uh, Onesimus in the book of Philemon. Uh, We don't know the full history, but whether it's bankruptcy or some other way, uh, Onesimus found himself uh, as as a slave. And he didn't like that, and so he escaped, he sold some stuff, did some other damage to Philemon, and he runs away. And while he's on the run, he comes under the teaching of Paul. He comes to faith. He embraces the gospel. Uh, Paul gets to know him and he kind of becomes uh, an apprentice or in some way being discipled by Paul. And as Paul gets to know uh, what has gone on in his life and he hears what's happened, he says, you need, to, you need to make that right with Philemon. And I can only imagine the reaction of Onesimus. I mean, what good will that do? Why are you going to make me go back there? I'm finally, for the first time in my life, doing something productive and fulfilling, it just, it, this feels, this feels so embarrassing to go back. And, uh, and so often that is the kind of thing uh, that, that would prevent us from following uh, God's calling. And I think there's a lesson for us in that, is that in our, in our success, we never need to allow that to view us as being less dependent Upon the grace of God. Because when we recognize our dependence upon the grace of God. Then our reputation will be much less interfering. To fulfilling those parts of our purpose. Which may come out of that being fools for Christ's sake component of our identity. And then finally there's failure. There's times when we have a sense of what God's purpose is. And that that is what we need to pursue. And then we fall short and we think game's over. We messed it up. We're now on like God's plan B or we've done this several times. We start to go like to plan G or something. We think we've messed it up. We failed. It's too bad. Um, yeah, I think the maybe classic example of that is Peter when he denied Christ. Uh, but before we kind of go there and look at that part of his life, I want to see how he got there for just a minute because I think sometimes we, we beat Peter up without giving him the credit that he deserves. Um, In Gethsemane that night before Jesus would go on to trial, uh, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, uh, what we find is that the disciples, at least ten of them, uh, fled. Only two of them followed Jesus close enough to the trial that they could see and hear what was going on. That was Peter and John. And so, in order to get to the point where Peter would deny Christ, he had to follow him farther than 87.5% of his fellow disciples. But yet, even with that, the very disciple who said, I will die before I let them take you away, denied Jesus third time, three times. The third time, to a little slave girl who wouldn't have been a threat to him at all. Well, What did Jesus have him do? He had him, you know, in kind of that post-resurrection encounter with Peter, admit what happened, acknowledge it, and yet still continue to fulfill the purpose. You are still Peter. It is still on your confession of who I am, that I am the Christ, the Son of God, that I will build my church and I still want you to lead. He says... Failure does not remove my purpose from your life. And I think we've seen that, hopefully, in our time here. In that, chances are, it is the stories of my failure and weakness that makes this seminar more realistic, uh, more receivable. Plenty of the things that I've shared with you are embarrassing and their points of failure where I just didn't feel like it measured up to what I felt like God was calling me to do in those moments. But there's something about that that is human, that makes this interaction authentic, that God would redeem in this interaction uh, that is greater than the good of even what didn't happen there. And so I think we use that just as an example of the way that God can redeem uh, all parts of our life, and that should not take us off track um, from the purpose for which God created us. And so before we go any further, uh, I think it's appropriate for us just to pray uh, and thank God uh, for, for what we've learned to this point. If you would, pray with me. Lord, we come to you, and we are grateful that you have adopted us as your child, that we live in Christ. Lord, that we, in the law, we see something so precious, something that represents you and your character, that we would give our lives to to serve you, that you allow us to be uh, the temple of the Spirit, that we would show hospitality to you in our life. Lord, that you've created us for a purpose, that you made us to fulfill things that that are the very things that would enthuse and satisfy our souls. And we ask that you would give us the ability to discern how to do those things in a way that glorifies you and satisfies us. And Lord, that all of these things that we've discussed that would interfere with that, that would distract us from it, embarrassment and failure and busyness and the mundaneness of life, that you would protect us from losing that satisfying sense of purpose in the midst of the lives that we live. To your name we pray. Amen.